A stu- stu- Studio D production. Guys, just be chill, girl. Be chill. I too much coffee. Now I feel sick. Just projectile vomit. <laughs> Please Gonna don't. Poop my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Please poop your pants. I want that immortalized <laughs> on the podcast forever. We're <laughs> <laughs> right. gonna have a podcast. <laughs> don't do it anymore. <laughs> you have to say it in a different way. <laughs> Would you like to get into the episode at this point? Shall we partake in the cast of pods? The cast Sit down, I want to tell you a story. A really weird and messed up story. With murdering ghosts and gobbly ghouls. It's all really fucked up, so don't you be fooled. That's right, okay. It's effed up family story time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Effed Up Family Storytime. I'm Salem. And I'm Hannah. And here today on mic, we have Kelly. Hi. How you doing today, Kelly? (laughs) (laughs) You kept looking at me after I said hi, and I was like, oh no, am I supposed to say more? (laughs) I don't know. I thought we talked about maybe not going so quickly through our introductions. What am I supposed to say? I don't know. Hey, guys. I thought that was funny. Okay. <laughs> and Belle. Hey. Oh, that's how you don't go so quickly, right? <laughs> yeah. Dragged it out. Yeah. Literally dragged it out. <laughs> so we're here today uh, recording our 28th episode. Boop, boop. I know we've been gone for a while, so we're really, 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 <laughs> very and really excited to be back. It's been 84 years. <laughs> What's everybody been up to these last few months? How many months has it been? Well, our wall says that Derek's episode was the 25th. Oh, man. Of, of October. October. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a very long it's time. About six months. Because it's May now. Yeah. So that's like seven months. Oh, my gosh. So what has everyone been up to over the last seven months? Yeah. Is that the question? That's the question at hand. Well, I sat at home for about six months and then I got married. Yeah, but yeah, just like that, nice. she sat, sat at, at home, home again. and then she got married. <laughs> I mean, you've been working. It's not like you haven't been working. Well, yeah, that. but like, what else have I been doing? Yeah, that's pretty much my life. You know, pandemic. Been work. I work and I sit at home and I got married. I had a week of like, you know, fun shit. And that I'm was back pretty to exciting though. Sitting at home. So Belle got married. I got that's married. A big deal. And it was at our house mine salem's house and george's house um and mom's house and it was beautiful it, it was, was beautiful. a fun party everybody cried every single person cried are you Not sure me. about that i'm proud of myself have you did you look at matt's eyes because no. i don't know yeah i don't think james cried either um i'm sorry i don't mean to like bring you down but <laughs> so what who about? else what else has stuff going on what about hannah how's your last yeah when are you gonna get married five months no that's not <laughs> what i meant <laughs> what are you getting married james are you listening <laughs> should have just done it at the should have just time. done a double wedding <laughs> i just want to no. take a caravan full of people up to the middle of the mountains and just like wander into like a <laughs> That's my wedding murder. <laughs> that might that might lead right know. into our story. Oh snap! I don't know why I said that. I'm no, sorry. Not really? No. All right. So Hannah, we talked about your trying to pressure James in to marry you, but what's going on? What else is going on in your life? Um, school. I'm back in school. Yay! Yay. 
Yay. It's a nightmare. But you just finished your semester. Yeah. Oh, that's my happy Celebrate. But I only have three weeks off. But that's doing summer classes. Still three weeks. And I'm still not going to graduate until 2023. Oh. Ah! I hate it. I hate everything. Well, that's Well, all right. So life has been great for Hannah. Congratulations. How's things been for you, Kelly? Well, I work a lot. And then I work some more. And then I work some more. (laughs) Yay! That That's sounds all. And fun. my husband's been depressed because his job sucked, but he just got a new job. Yay! Yay! That's literally it. I have nothing else. Yay. So just <laughs> life going on just like normal, basically. Living the dream living every the dream. day. Well, I don't know. It's been a lot of stuff going on, but um, basically just living the dream, just living the life, you know, like normal. But dealing with some health issues that George has had. So that's been kind of uh, overwhelming. I mean, things are in a better place now. So he's getting treatment and feeling a little bit better and stuff. So, but it was kind of scary for a little yeah, while. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the last oh, couple months has been a whirlwind of planning Belle's wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But Which it was, was beautiful. Nice. It was beautiful, and it gave me an excuse to do some projects around the house, so that was kind of nice. Good for yeah. you. Yeah, and it's been kind of cool. You're a rock star. So, and now we, you and the wedding got through was the so wedding. Beautiful. And I'm so thankful for everything you did. <laughs> it was beautiful. It, it was, was great. And now you can refocus on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We're bringing We're this baby back. We're back, We're back. Glad to be back. Yeah. A little rusty we are, but... That's okay. I'm That's talking okay. Give like us, Yoda. Give us a little rusty we are. Give us your feedback. Let us know how rusty we are and tell us how to oh, be yeah. better. We're available on just about every platform you listen to your podcasts on. Um, please rate us. That helps us to um, get out there. People see us better. It helps our visibility. So valorate us. Um, a five-star uh-huh. rating. Terrible. I know. So valorate us, please. Um, five stars would be awesome, but tell us your honest opinion. Leave us a review. You can also comment on our Facebook page. We have a, a very neglected Twitter and Instagram as well. You are welcome to comment on any of those. Join the family. Share your favorite episode. Join us. Join the family. But be nice to me. Yeah, don't be mean to me or I will cry. Be mean I'm to Jess. I'm already crying. She can handle it. No, Jess is going to read our Don't mean- be mean to Jess because Jess will be mean to you right back. That's true. <laughs> I, I did tell Matt that with my new YouTube channel that he has to read all the comments and pass on the good ones to me and then rephrase gently the mean ones <laughs> because I still want to learn. I still want to be better. Yeah, I, I want to improve. The feedback is good. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, can, you can rephrase your own to be kind towards us so that we can accept it or you can be mean and we will make Jess. And I'll just cry. <laughs> reread it to us, and then she'll be mean back. Something I learned from Game Grumps on YouTube is that if you read all hate comments in the voice of Dale Gribble from King of the Hill, they don't hurt as bad. Oh, I love oh, that. That's nice. 
Leave a hateful comment, and James will read your hateful comment in the voice of Dale Gribble. We'll set it up. We'll have it available on our Patreon. Your face looks kind of weird. Wait, I don't don't want to reinforce, like, the the negative comments. It's not like, like, if you're an asshole to us, you get to have your comment read on our podcast. But I guess you would have to pay first to be... You'd have to pay to to be on Patreon to listen to it. it. So then we'd have your Patreon money. So So I guess it's okay. So James has to be the one that reads all of our comments. You are dumb. You talk You're too never much. gonna amount to nothing. <laughs> your it does hurt is, a lot less. <laughs> your mother is disappointed in you. <laughs> You're the reason your father left. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to get into our story. Um, so this uh, episode, we're doing the story on the process church of the final judgment. Those Ooh. are... Those are words. And Those are I, don't, words. I don't know. In what an order. Ooh, they, mean, they mean about as much as the entire cult meant throughout its whole <laughs> <laughs> lifetime. So I got, I, I initially, I'm not going to give the sources. I think maybe we give the, I'll just put the sources in the notes. Um, but uh, I initially got in this idea to do the story on the process from watching the Sons of Sam documentary which I'm not going to really use much as a resource because of things I found out later. I, they're really, in my um, research, did not find any connection to. So the Sons of Sam is about David Berkowitz and the murders that he was charged with and eventually convicted for. And if you, I would recommend watching the documentary. It's very interesting. And I do agree. So there was a, an investigative reporter that caught on to the story. Um, his name was Murray Terry, and he wrote a book. God, I can't remember the name of the book now. He wrote a book basically on like satanic cults and stuff. And this was all like in the 70s, mid 70s you know, to late seventies when that satanic panic was mm-hmm. becoming rampant. Right. But he had some valid points where there's some murders that were committed that were blamed on David Berkowitz, where they, they don't like, there's one in particular where he was seen at his car dealing with a parking ticket several blocks away from the murder that was committed just a few minutes later after he was seen. And there's really no way that he could be and uh, at the, you know, have committed the murder. And there's other eyewitness. Um, oh, Hannah found it. I just it. found the name of the book. It's called The Ultimate Evil. Thank you. The Ultimate yeah. Evil by Murray Terry. Um so I agree with him that I think that the murders were not committed by just one person. Did did he confess? To, I haven't watched the documentary yet, so spoiler alert. But did he confess to all the ones even that? Or no, he didn't confess. He was convicted for the ones. Even well, he that. confessed. So initially, when he was arrested, he confessed to all of the murders, and there really wasn't a trial. He settled, right? He he. he I think he um, pled guilty. Okay. And so he was convicted for all of the murders. So later, years after he'd been in prison, Murray Terry does some interviews, okay. but he questions him in such a leading. F- fashion that there's like you can't believe david berkowitz it's kind of like oh this is what you want you want me to say there were other people involved okay i'll tell you there were other people involved it was so leading that you know he you know murray terry puts it out there in the media that he admits that there were other people and then he admits like a connection to the process 
and all of this, but it was so leading that you can't believe he was, okay. you know, uh, um, in my opinion, he was giving, you know, Terry what he wanted to hear. Okay. It's, I think the problem with a lot of serial killers is that like the only people that know what happened is the murderer and they're dead and the serial killer. And you mean can the you? murder victim? Murder victim. <laughs> the murdery. Well, <laughs> if we go into like the story of um, Berkowitz, you know, they had all of one interesting thing is they had all of these um, sketches, you know, for perpetrators and they were different. They were obviously different people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can like there is some subjectiveness to somebody yeah, telling you what sure. somebody li- but height was different. Body build was oh. different. You know, weight and stuff was different. I mean, like, it wasn't just hair. It wasn't just facial features. It was like the whole package was well, different. Well, and I this- think any time that a person is willing to confess and take a plea deal and like basically accept responsibility for something and then later say, no, I didn't, whether they're doing it, like, I don't know, like, especially nonchalantly saying, no, I, there was someone else involved. Like, you, there's no credibility there. Like, no. I don't, yeah. <laughs> like, well, and, the majority of the time when people who are convicted of multiple murders do that is to try and get like some kind of time off or like special treatment yeah, while they're yeah. in prison. Like, yeah. And also like you talking about how he was so uncredible after all those leading questions and stuff like that. It's just also just kind of how confessions are. I feel like the more that we mm-hmm. learn about certain tactics that investigators use during confession or like during um yeah interrogations and investigations and stuff like confessions are so incredible a lot of the time and same with eyewitness testimony like saying all of these different sketches of him yeah i understand that saying that it's different builds and different heights that is different but like eyewitness testimony is so fucking uncredible it's the least credible Test or like evidence that you can put in a crime is wi- mm-hmm. eyewitness but testimony. It is viewed at, like it is as by so the like by like the jury. And and, yeah, as yeah. so like um, what's the word? Like we're convincing or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's other factors in the documentary, at least. Like I said, I didn't really research the case, um, but up watching the documentary, which make me believe that there were probably more than one people that committed the crimes. There was a lot of murders and assaults that were all kind of related to the same person, David Berkowitz. But I do believe with other circumstantial evidence that there was probably more than at least one more person that was involved. And he, but that wasn't what the story was about. What do you want to say? Oh yeah. Sorry. I was just going to go on a tangent. Go ahead. (laughs) Just, is it because during the time that all of this was happening, the fucking seventies and was it LA or was it New York? It was New York. Yeah. But even then the seventies in New York, so many fucking murders were happening. So many assaults were happening all over the place. And like, well, yeah, that's it, one thing. That was d- it that David Berkowitz worked with somebody else or was it that there was just somebody else committing crimes? <laughs> well, and there could yeah. have been, but there were things that also connected the crimes, like the same like 44 caliber weapon was used and they tra- and they like did ballistics oh, on the bullet and okay. they connected the bullets to, you know, and then there's a connection with Berkowitz with another character. And I can't remember his name now that might have been involved. And he fit one of the descriptions that was like one of the the, the oh, like um, sketches. So I don't think he worked alone. I think there was a group of people. I don't know if they were a cult or not. The process, Church of the Final Judgment, was in New York during the time of those murders. He could have been a member. 
because, you know, but I didn't find any evidence that he was or any of the other people. And one thing I thought was interesting in the documentary that that Terry puts in his book is that he found this this split from the process called the children, which was like its own cult, its own sect. And that's supposedly what, and he tracks all of these members, you know, he, towards the end of his like research into all of this, he tracks all of these members and thinks he can trace them all back to the children, the spinoff from the process. But there's no, like when I researched the children, that's initially what got me interested. I could not find any information on them other than, like leading me to the documentary or to Murray Terry's book. Uh, so he's the only source of this, basically. So, and I think, I mean, he was on Geraldo. He was on like <laughs> Donahue. He was on all of those talk shows pumping his book back, you know, when Geraldo was a main figure in like the satanic panic yeah. and all of that. <laughs> satanic panic fueling everything. And so <laughs> I really think that a lot of that was fabricated by mm. Murray's like need to find... You know, this satanic cult that was causing all of these problems. So, but that's what led me into this story. So I started doing some research on the Process Church. And it is interesting, while it is not as effed up as I thought it would be, it's still (laughs) an interesting story. So we're going to start with the founders of the church so the church was established, basically the, the religious group, it wasn't called the process then, but it was established in 1963 in U- the United Kingdom um, by Mary Ann McLean and Robert Sylvester Moore. So um, McLean and Moore, they came from very different backgrounds. Um, I don't know if it's McLean or McLean. She was Scottish. Um, so McLean was born um, in... She was born in November 20th, 1931 in Glasgow, Scotland. She was born out of wedlock to a single mother who really didn't have the means to take care of her. I believe she, I'm not sure if she had siblings or not. I believe she did. That should be something that I should have in here, but I don't. (laughs) Unimportant. The siblings Um, aren't the focus. But her mom was, yeah. Her mom often couldn't take care of her, so she left her for long periods of time with relatives or, you know, anybody who could watch her. So she had this kind of abandonment issue from a very young, you know, age. Um, She didn't really have any relatives that were close to her. She didn't really have anybody that, like, would look out for her or care for her. Um, She So Glasgow, the area that she lived in was called the Gorbals which I think is awesome. I would like to live there, please. (laughs) I don't know how to say it in a Scottish accent, but um, it was a really poverty-stricken area. Oh, maybe I don't want to live there. No, I don't think you do. (laughs) And, like, it was so poverty-stricken that, like, the average was eight people to a room and 30 people to a toilet. Oh, no. It's pretty miserable circumstances. And so so sex work was rampant. Um, because it was a great means for women to make money. And this is the environment that Marianne grew up in. So she watched these sex workers, and she eventually became a sex worker. She was really good. I mean, she was kind of crazy from the very beginning. I think she was bipolar, is my opinion. But um, she watched these sex workers and very quickly like learned the ins and outs of reading people and discovering what they want and what they need and being able to offer that so that she could manipulate them. And she started forming long-term relationships with people that were in like the upper crust and 
discovering that this got her more money. It got her status. Good for her, And man. she moved to London at one point and was like a high-end prostitute in London. She actually was rumored to have a relationship with Sugar Ray Robinson and to have spent a year living with him in America. And, of course, all the claims are denied. But if you go back through the, like, the census records, there is proof that she lived in America for about a year around that time that, that she was rumored to have this relationship. So she was making her way. She was manipulating people. She was kind of cold-hearted, kind of like uh, sociopathic almost in the way that she, you know, it was all about her gaining status and money. So Moore, on the other hand, he came from privilege. He was born in October of 1935. He was a British citizen and he was born in Shanghai, China. He moved back to Britain when he was about a year old. His family came from privilege and status. Their ancestry could be uh, traced back to the house of Plantagenet. Oh, that good old house. Yeah, that good old house (laughs) of Plantagenet. That, um, That was like the formal royal house. Of England. So he had royal lineage. And so he didn't have to struggle. He didn't, you know, but his parents being from this privileged status felt like he should go to a good school and they put him in a private school and more rebelled against the strictness, especially the sexual, like, you know, strictness for sexual behavior, I guess, or whatever. Um, So when he graduated, he was offered a full scholarship to some big university, and he didn't accept it. He instead enrolled in the army, and that was, I think, his way of rebelling against his parents. Mm -hmm. After he spent four years in the army, he did enroll in university, where he married and had two children, which is interesting because in 1962, he like suddenly left school, left his family, disappeared. His like friends were noted saying that he was just gone, you know, like the bastard. And that's when he joined the church of Scientology. No. (laughs) Yeah. So that was what pulled him away from his family was joining the church of Scientology. Did you have a question? Fuck Scientology. That's my question. (laughs) I think instead of the whole, like, thanks Obama thing, we should say thanks Ron thanks. L. Hubbard. Thanks L. Hubbard. Ron. L. L. Ron. L. Ron. Not Ron L. L. Ron. L. Ron that Hubbard. Sound, is it, it is really? L. Ron. It's L. R. H. Yeah. Fine. But, um, <laughs> no, thanks, right. n- thanks, L. R. H. I think so, L. Ron just, like, rolls off the tongue. So the, I think L. Ron sounds way too cool. It makes it sound yeah. like he's an elf or, like, a magical L. Ron, Elon, are they that a, far from each he other? He was just a fucking nerd who wrote shitty science fiction <laughs> books and Elon had enough money to convince Ron everyone Hubbard. to follow him. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> that's a wild take that Salem's... I just got to say, I'm all for Elon going to Mars, but don't go because he has no way to get anybody back. He can go. Like, but seriously, he can go on his own. I was listening to last podcast and like work on that. Yeah, he's going to work on that while you're (laughs) stranded on Mars. Mars. (laughs) No, they're working on that as a part of the mission. It's okay. Okay. We don't have to worry about that because we don't have enough money. They don't want us there anyway. They only want the rich people on Mars. I feel like you have really strong takes on this that I'm not entirely <laughs> sure are completely accurate. I think you're just leaning into the fact that he's a billionaire. Let's and go an for asshole. it, though. Wild speculation. Yeah, Elon <laughs> sucks ass. He's such a dick. <laughs> just to paint a picture of the kind of person that McLean was, Robert uh, Moore, 
Moore was um, has been noted in his writing as saying the first time that he met McLean actually was when he many years before they met in person, he was crossing the street. And this car came shooting down the highway or the highway shooting down the road towards him, not slowing down for him. He had to jump out of the way of the car. And when he saw the woman driving the car, she had like this force and this con like focus and concentration didn't even pay him any mind. Like a, he would, he would describe her as like a torrential weather storm, you know, that was, and so he had, he had seen her then. And then many years he met her many years later, he met her, but it's just kind of an interesting story that that was like his first, he's, I mean, like that if he, if it was really her, but I don't know if I'd want to meet her again, if she almost hit me with her car. And then then (laughs) after the first time that he met her, he was quoted saying that she offended him. Her like strong personality offended him and, and threatened his masculinity and he did not like her. Right. (laughs) And, um, so it's kind of interesting that they form such a close relationship. That's a personal goal of mine. I exist every man to threaten fragile masculinity. (laughs) So anyway, McLean joined uh, the Church of Scientology in 1961. So it was about a year before Robert Moore. I don't know why I keep calling her McLean and him Robert. So it was about a year later that that Moore joined joined the, the Church of Scientology. When he joined, at that point, McLean was an auditor. So the process of auditing was the auditor would go into a session using what they called an e-meter, and it would measure the electrical tension or whatever that was emanating from a person, like the aura. Um, and so the auditor would direct the um, patient through like memories, whether they were from their current life or a past life. And as they experienced these memories, they would measure the tension and discover like what things they needed to work on there. Like the whole purpose was to like remove the negative energy from the body. And it was a process that led them to being quote clear. And once you were clear, you had removed all of that like negative energy from your past experiences and um, were like able to then lead people to become clear. What it really did (laughs) was give a bunch of, you know, I don't know. It's like a bunch of secrets. It forced people to tell their secrets so that you were forced <laughs> to stay with the Scientology well, church. And like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of want to be cleared. Like that sounds like a wonderful no, experience. It was like a very like, traumatic experience and like for a lot of it, people. Like, they like well, dug into a lot of people's really personal traumas yeah. and any and trauma that you had, they would make you feel personally responsible for it and make you feel like it was your responsibility to not have that happen to you and to grow from that like really serious trauma like sexual abuse childhood abuse like shit that people wouldn't tell most people and then they have all these secrets and then like force them to stay in the church you know if you leave we have all of this shit that we know about you and we can tell your whole family and ruin your whole life you know well and members did actually benefit from some of the therapy the people also just go to therapy i mean it's (laughs) like therapy yeah well it's like the the secret 
one that like that that cult or whatever this this secret thing how like some people like really bought into it and said that these experiences that you're pushing me through like are actually making me a better person and I really value and some people are traumatized by it. So I could see that. They did have really harsh methods. Like one of their methods was taking somebody and sitting them in a room with other members that would then like, like throw the worst insults that they could in like this horrible manner where it was like degrading and almost like to the point of torture because they were supposed to work, like be able to handle that and not have it affect them. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like working. So, I mean, I can kind of understand the psychology behind it, but at the same time, it was not done in a psychological yeah, exactly. setting. It's done yeah. by people who have no training in psychology, so it did more damage than good, I and think. And that's basically the method of, like, one of the methods of Dianetics. That's yeah. where, so that was mm-hmm. what she had. That was her job when she was in Scientology, and Robert Moore kind of assisted her through that. But McLean was very controlling, And um, she basically at one point said, I need to have absolute control over my sessions and my patients. And she was like, they had a script that they were supposed to follow. And she was like changing the script, asking her own questions, delving into things in a different way than the method really taught them to do. So the Church of Scientology decided to bug her sessions because they wanted to hear what was really going on. And when she discovered this, she got really enraged and she quit. She left the Church of Scientology, taking with her an e-meter. So she stole an e-meter. And Robert, at that point, was so infatuated with her. She had basically told him the same thing. Like, I welcome your infatuation, but just understand that I have absolute control. (laughs) Like... I have absolute control over you basically was how she laid it out. And that's how she lived her life. She thought, I really think at some point she thought she was a goddess. She kind of portrayed herself as a goddess once the church, you know, goes on. And I really think that at some point she thought she was a goddess. She really thought she had that power and control over everything. I think a lot of those like cult leaders, like at first it's like a manipulation tactic to get people to like, you know, pledge to you or whatever. But I think a lot of them, like you're in this like closed loop circuit and you're just like feeding off of your Mm -hmm. followers. And for a lot of those cult leaders, they get to a point where they start to believe their own bullshit, like truly believe their own bullshit. Like you had mentioned, you thought that she had bipolar disorder which is just wild speculation, but <laughs> like a, a big part of personality disorders, which I don't think bipolar is, but like bipolar is very similar to BPD, which is a personality disorder. Um, a lot of that is like having moments where you do feel like that feeling of like epic grandeur and like you feel mm-hmm. like you are invincible and you have like a God complex to some extent And part of the reason that I I believe that she might have been bipolar is because Moore described her as this force in nature, but he said that she was like the weather. One day, like one minute, it could be a sunny day and you're in her, like you're basking in her glow and then like it can change like on the turn of a dime Mm -hmm. to like this frosty winter or it can change to this thunderstorm. She was like this force of nature that couldn't decide on on the you know the weather that she was I guess I don't know I'm not describing it very well oh, but analogy but you know that that being able that flipping on a dime and then you know later when um the church was more progressed some of the members would describe her as being like you know she would find somebody that she 
um, would like rise up to be like her second, you know, this very, and then she'd like switch on a dime and they would be like cast out. You know what I mean? That honestly sounds more like BPD to what me. What is BPD? Borderline personality disorder. Oh, okay. And maybe that's Which what it is. They, yeah. The two get too. misdiagnosed all the time for each other, but that just sounds more like BPD to me because that involves a lot with like your interpersonal relationships and a lot of people with BPD will have like those extreme reactions towards like their closest friends. They'll have like they get really attached to them, but then suddenly are like afraid of that attachment and will like push them away for absolutely no reason. And so the that's delusions more of, like, of the, grandeur fit into yeah. that better. Like the delusions of um, being somebody great or being here for like some great purpose. Yeah. You know. But we are not mental health professionals. No, so that's not even again, a little bit wild speculation. But it <laughs> I mean, helps I know us to better understand the people we're talking about when we speculate a little bit on what might have been going on. Yeah, I know most of my um, knowledge of BPD, which I didn't realize that uh, borderline personality disorder is from the movie Girl Interrupted. I don't know if you've all watched which that. I, it's no, very I old. I thought I heard that that was. Like people weren't happy with that, or is that no? Uh, a lot of people don't really yeah. like it now, but it was years Very ago. It wasn't a dated, good representation yeah. or something like that. I'm just here to vibe. Anyway, so <laughs> when uh, McLean left the Church of Scientology, she took an e-meter and she took more with her, and they uh, formed a group called Compulsions Analysis, where they basically continued. Um, the method that Scientology used in their auditing to hold sessions. They also used the ideas of um, a psychoanalysis called uh, named Adler, Alfred Adler. Mm-hmm. And I guess he did a lot of uh, <laughs> research on um, like self-actualization. And uh-huh. that was the information that they used in their, in their, their sessions. Right. And you went, Oh, tell me about Alfred Adler. I just <laughs> Hannah. remember that name from all of my psychology classes. Okay. Yeah. It sounds familiar to me yeah. too, but I don't want to be put on the spot to have to no, tell you. No, I just thought maybe she <laughs> had some information. Um, so, uh, so they continued to do sessions. They continued to bring in members and, uh, more contacted his friends from the university where he had married this woman and had kids and apparently abandoned them. Don't tell my, my wife that I ran away from and disappeared from that I'm contacting you, (laughs) but but come and be a member. Help me. So he recruited one friend, Timothy Wiley, who actually ended up being like a lifelong member of the group and became like a higher up and a director towards the end. So um, so he got Wiley in there and Wiley started doing some sessions. And he actually, when he first met McLean, he didn't trust her. He saw her as a homewrecker that pulled more away from his family and his kids, which wasn't so the truth because it was Scientology that was the homewrecker. But um, it's always the woman's fault. But he didn't it's trust never her. the man who I mean, chooses to leave his wife and kids. She was a crazy bitch and he had every <laughs> reason not to trust her. But I understand what you're saying. Um, it really was L. Ron Hubbard's fault. So it really yeah. was Thanks, L. Ron Hubbard. It was Thanks, L. Ron Hubbard. LHR. I feel like people like that. It was Elon. I mean, if L. you're Ron. that eager to get out of your marriage and abandon your wife and kids, you're going to find a reason sooner or later. 
Yeah. Truth. It just so happened to be Scientology this time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that, but I think that there's also like certain personalities that are drawn oh, I know. to that kind. Like he was rebelling against his privileged upbringing and the strict life that was put in front My of life him. Is so hard. And Which, those type of people were definitely the people that L. Ron went after specifically, yeah. like yeah. the ones who were wealthy and like well, yeah. part of that counterculture of the time where they were like throwing away the ideals that their parents had taught them, but they still had all of this mm. money to give to it this was, brand new church. It like, was misfits, and he yeah, was a misfit. But rich misfits. But rich <laughs> misfits <laughs> were definitely desired because that's who paid the bills, which yeah. we'll find mm-hmm. as we go further into the process, like who pays the bills? It's the members that pay the bills. Mm-hmm. It's the members that also suffer the consequences of not having the money, you know, like by starving. So, <laughs> you know, um, so... They formed this group, Compulsions Analysis. They were they rented this apartment in a district that was full of like doctor's offices. And they used that to their benefit because they could put their business in there and they seem more legit, right? Because they're surrounded by all these other doctor's offices. So they kind of promoted themselves as like this medical, medical. you know, office, right? And McLean and Moore started dressing more dressing better. I don't know. McLean uh, would wear loose fitting dresses. You're in the middle of the sixties and would always look done up and stuff and, and more wore suits and, you know, tried to look dignified. And at this point in time, they started separating themselves from the group. So at this point, Moore and McLean were the only ones that could use the e-meter. So that made them put them in this higher status, right? They were the only ones that could do the sessions. And they started removing themselves and stopped going to group meetings and things like that so that they could create this like mystique about them. And it made them seem more important and more powerful. And this was all just a part of McLean's like whole manipulation, you know, of everyone to gain this status. Right. And I feel like that mystique is also very important for cult leaders mm-hmm. because if, the, the the cult members need to be like disenchanted to or enchanted to a certain extent because if they actually recognize that this person is just a dude. Yeah. If they're just like eating they, with you and going to all yeah. the meetings with you and you then see the that they're actually a person, yeah. you're not gonna idolize them exactly. as a god like they want you to. Yep. And so it was in 1964 they bought this apartment, and that's when Moore and McLean moved in together. Um, they still weren't married. He was still Scandalous. legally married to his previous wife because <laughs> um, they were just separated. So at some point, their um, compulsions analysis was doing so well that they moved into this mansion on Balfour Street in London. And this provided them, like, this really provided them the opportunity to appear as, like, royalty, you know, because they were in this mansion and they would remove themselves and they really became these, like, almost godlike mm-hmm. um, leaders of this cult. <laughs> so um, they moved into the mansion on Balfour Street and that is when they started having some trouble. So at one point they had a member called Holly and she was an adult. And she'd been a member for a while, and she invited her little sister, Susie, who was 16 years old, to visit. Well, when Susie was scheduled to go home, Susie didn't. She basically wanted to become a member of the cult. Well, of course, her parents were like, absolutely not. 
They contacted a lawyer, had to go through some legal shit. And um, basically they were told you can't keep Susie because Susie is only 16. So she, so they released her back to her parents. Um, The impression I got was that Susie didn't want to leave, but they sent her back to her parents, but Holly couldn't leave because she was an adult. They couldn't get her out that easily. So it took Holly a while several months before she was able to extricate herself from the church. And at this point, she then spoke to the media and was talking about how it was cult-like and how she tried to get out for months and she couldn't. And so there was this, you know, information going around in the media about the process church. So they started losing members or not, not so much losing members, but they weren't recruiting members like they had been. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, they had another similar incident where there was uh, a man named Christian, uh, Christopher, sorry, a man named Christopher who had his younger brother, uh, Jonathan, who was 17, came to stay, didn't leave. The parents were already concerned about Christopher being there. They already had done some research on the church. But then when Jonathan went, they got a lawyer. They actually sued the church. And, um, I can't, I don't know what they sued for, but they sued the church. And so, uh, they had an incident. This is really unfortunate for the prosecutor, but their notes were mailed to the Balfour mansion. So the defense had all of the prosecutor's notes. So they were able to win the case. Oh, no. But at this point, the media had so much negative information about them that they were losing members left and right. And um, they decided that London wasn't the place for them. McLean, you know, had stated that um, that London was still too small minded, till, still too Christian oriented to accept their viewpoints. So they decided they needed to leave. So and. I will mention that at some point um, in those, during all of this happening, um, once they bought the Balfour Mansion, Robert and Marianne got married. Marianne insisted that Robert change his name because Moore was too common of a surname and they needed something more exotic. And that's when they changed their name to DeGrimston. DeGrimston, which was like a family name of his. But that's when they became Marianne and Robert DeGrimston. DeGrimston. Bigamy! So they decided they were going to leave London um, and they uh, left the country. And we can take a break here if you want. And we can move on to their jet setting lifestyle after the break. You want to wow. do that? They are the wow. most jet setting cult I've oh. ever read about. Let me tell you, you'll get to see all the places that well, they that's set the up sort of chapters. Cult I want to be in. <laughs> they starve too. I don't too, know. So. If I have to be in Jonestown a cult, is also kind of a jet setting No, you're going to be in my cult when I set up my okay. cult. You're going to be in my cult. I'm thankful I would, that but we I'm probably never going to get wrapped up in a cult because I don't want to improve myself in that way. I think that if the Kool-Aid tastes good, why why not drink it? <laughs> as long as it as doesn't, long as have, it doesn't poison. have poison. <laughs> I agree. There you go. That's what I, I want to say. I story that. time. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get back into our story. Where did we leave off? We left off with the Process Church leaving London. They headed to Nassau, Bahamas. Oh, I wasn't expecting oh, that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so um, McLean, or I'm sorry, the DeGrimstons, their their purpose was, or their their purpose, 
their purpose was to be assholes to the world. <laughs> their goal, Same. their goal was when they left London to buy an island in the Bahamas. They wanted to have a secluded place where they could go without the influences of other people and the Christian religion and the like, you know, closed mindedness of the strict. And the process of yeah. the Christian of the judgment of the, <laughs> I don't know. You're my second and you don't even know the process church of the final judgment. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, this was, so it was in, um, isn't it? It was in 19... Sorry, what? I don't know. I was going to fill this fill for time, but go. <laughs> it, was, it was in 1966 that they moved to Nassau. So um, it was in the early 60s that they formed, like 63 when they formed the group. So, uh, you know, there was still a pretty, like, strict outlook, basically, on the way people should live their lives. This was still at the beginning of... And this was in Europe, too. But it was at the beginning of like the free love movement and all of that in America. So there was still that kind of like strict Christian outlook. So their thought was, we're going to go buy an island where we can be isolated and it's going to be in the Bahamas where there's kind of like a little bit more of a free thinking with uh, religion and spirituality. Um, But they couldn't, for whatever reason, they were unable to come up with the money to buy an island or it fell through. I don't know if it was money. I don't know. Don't really know. But uh, so they ended up buying like a three-story house in Nassau that overlooked a pool and they set up their church there. And uh, they... That just doesn't seem very impressive if you're on an island that your house overlooks a pool. (laughs) Like there's the whole ocean around you and it's like, oh, we have a pool. (laughs) (laughs) But we have a pool. Yeah, well, and the the place was a lot smaller than the Balfour Mansion, too. So they didn't have as much room. It was definitely closer quarters, but they had the whole island experience. They would often spend time, you know, out in the pool and stuff. And uh, some of the members, this wasn't meant to be their permanent home. So some of the members got jobs and they tried to raise money because their goal was to go to their permanent home. And while they were there, they were like still doing their sessions, their auditing sessions, but uh, they were doing like nightly meditations and stuff as a group led by um, Marianne. And they started at this point during their meditation contacting these beings, they just called them the beings that would, they would communicate with, they would ask questions and they would have like this relationship with these beings during their meditation, right? So after they had saved enough money, they felt like they could move on to their permanent home. They, as a, as a collective, they all sat down and meditated and asked the beings, where should they go? And simultaneously, they all received the answer, Mexico, so they headed to Mexico. Do you think that really happened? That they I all... don't know. <laughs> I and mean, not even the beings part, but just like if you've ever been in a group of people and you're like, where should we order food? And like everyone at the same time says Papa John's. I know. Like, Shit! Like, what, what is happening? Well, I feel like the too, beings told us. They're all spending this time like meditating and like getting into that same brain space. Like I've done a lot of like group meditations with like theater, you know, and some weird shit can happen. Like when you're all kind of feeding into each other's energy. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't even have to be like a like a like a celestial force or whatever. Like it could just be that like weirdness of the human connection cuz that shit can be trippy sometimes. Yeah, that's true. And while I never really found any mention of drug use, 
You've got a question. It's the 60s. Like how <laughs> much drug use was going on also that might be like altering your perception when you're meditating of like, you know, some little auditory hallucinations or, you know, is it really... Not to say you can't communicate with beings. I'm very open-minded with that. But it's just like everybody at once heard oh. Mexico. Even Maybe smoking a little weed corner. and then like meditating can get me into some weird head spaces where I can, you know. And that's even and just if, with marijuana. <laughs> like not even any sort of like hallucinogen or and anything. if I was just like sitting in the corner of your house and I just whisper, Mexico. I might. I might if like, I was high enough. So like one bitch could have just been in the corner like, I really want to go to Mexico. And then everyone's like, it's Mexico. <laughs> so in um, 1966, I cannot say 66, 1966. <laughs> um, so the same year they moved to Mexico. This is what's interesting. Oh There's a lot of shit that happens in 1966. And I'm just going to say same year. So same year they moved to Merida, Mexico. I'm not Merida? sure. Mexico? Merida. 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 Um, and I'm not sure exactly where that is, but they were able to get a cottage. So basically they went from a mansion to like this smaller but three-story house. house to this cottage <laughs> on the beach in Mexico. And it was fairly isolated. And by the time they got there, they basically had no money. So they had no food. And they were trying to fish, and they were horrible fishermen, <laughs> fisher people. And so they they basically were starving. One of their first real meals was when a fish, like a large fish, washed up onto the shore. So they were basically starving. And at one point, somebody discovered an abandoned salt factory. And so they decided that that was, you know, better suited for their needs because it was bigger, I guess. So they moved to this factory, but they had no running water. So in order to get water, they had to walk two miles into the village that was closest to fill up buckets and walk two miles back. And they were still starving. They were living off of coconuts and the random fish that somebody caught. So at this point, they're like emaciated. They're starving. Okay. They're still doing their meditations. And this is where I'm like, well, yeah, they were hearing voices and they were seeing <laughs> shit because yeah. they were starving. We all know if we do any research into like fasting and stuff, that part of the reason they had you fast for spiritual purposes is because it creates hallucinations mm -hmm. and visions, right? You know, it's it's not dissimilar to using like peyote or the ayahuasca mm -hmm. vine and stuff for your like spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. So um, at this point, they're still meditating. And in their process of meditating, they're like creating these beings from the beings. They're creating these deities out of the beings, right? They've evolved into these four gods. And so their four gods were Jehovah and Satan and Jesus and Lucifer. They I thought they wanted to get away from gods. Christianity. <laughs> I know. It's interesting. They even delve more into Christianity later. Um, but so what I find interesting, so of course, because they had Satan and they had Lucifer, this is why they were like thrown into the whole satanic panic when everybody was like researching their, their cult, their religion, because Lucifer and Satan were involved and they were Satan worshipers, right? And they weren't, 
they had they were not like at all satanic it was more i view it and i i don't know but this is my perception i view it as a balance there was a balance between light and dark you know um and i part of the reason i view it this way is because they had attributes for each of the gods so jehovah his one of his attributes was strength and leadership but then on the flip side, his other attribute was total- totalitarianism, mm-hmm. you know, and that that authoritative figure, right? Um, and then Jesus was unification, and then his other side was victimhood. So, you know, they both had an aspect, like each had a side of the coin, Right. Did they just victim blame Jesus? They did victim blame Jesus. Which, <laughs> when I read that the first time, I was like, ooh. ooh it was like a Christian part of me that was like, ooh. He, he was crucified. He was the, I mean, he's the ultimate martyr, right? Yeah. And you can't be a martyr without victimhood. So, um, and then Satan, um, his attributes were the fire of inspiration, but also decadence. And then Lucifer was the bringer of light, but aloofness was his alter hmm. attribute. Oh. I don't know. That's the one I don't know that I love. Aloofness. Aloofness. <laughs> I know that one didn't seem <laughs> to have as much. too chill. <laughs> but these were the gods. The, the beings became the gods and the gods, these are the gods that guided their religion. So they stayed in Mexico until, ready, 1966, <laughs> when Hurricane Inez hit the island. So... They had warning that the hurricane was coming. They were urged to leave, to evacuate. They chose not to. Instead, you know, using the guidance of the gods, right? Because they've become this cult now where they don't do anything without asking the guidance of the gods. They um, decided to take shelter on the island and they found like this big hole that had been dug for a building foundation. So they took shelter there. And the hurricane claimed over 200 lives, but they didn't lose a single life in the hurricane. But they lost everything else that they had. Everything. Everything they built, everything they owned. So they were basically wiped out financially. And so at this point, the members contacted their parents and their family, and, and they wanted to go back to London, they went back to the mansion on Balfour Street, and they be- they began recruiting members again. And they had a little bit more luck than they had before they left because some of the hoopla had died down, right? And at this point, they created a new hierarchy in the system. So, and this was again Marianne's idea, um, but they created a hierarchy where members that had been in like since the beginning were at the top and it filtered down. So new members were at the very bottom. And of course, you know, Marianne and and Robert were at the very top. And this is when she started calling herself the Omet or no, she started calling herself the Oracle. Robert was the teacher and together they were the Omega. So this is really at the point where she was like, I am a goddess, right? Leading this, my followers. Like, she really had these, like, delusions of grandeur at this point. So, um, and then they also became more disciplined in their life. They started, like, waking up all at the same time, having breakfast together, being assigned tasks. They created a magazine that they would peddle on the streets. 
And money had been a problem throughout the whole time. And money was really a problem after they lost everything in Mexico. So they would sell their magazine, but then they also opened a cafe in the basement of the mansion. And this would help bring in money. And the members would spend their time bussing tables and waitressing or waitering and waiting. Waiting. And... But that's funny that it's waitressing, but not but then it's just wait, waiting. waiting. But waiting can just, apply to waitresses as yeah, well. Yeah, because just, men just control everything. Anyway, <laughs> they use the magazine and the and the coffee shop as a way to like draw in members. So they and and there was pretty affluent people that would come to the coffee shop. Like one of the I think I, I mentioned him before, Timothy Wiley. Mm-hmm. He was reported saying that he had had discussions with Paul McCartney and then the managers of the Beatles and then Mick Jagger's girlfriend, which I don't remember her name. But like there was like pretty affluent people that would come into the coffee shop and they would use the magazine like people who bought the magazine. They could often encourage to come into the coffee shop. And then once they got them in the coffee shop, they could encourage them to have like a like an empathetic session which wasn't that different from one of their true sessions. And then when they, once they got them doing that, they could get them coming back for another session. And then before you know it, they like rope these people in. So that was going okay for them, but they were still having some issues with like the London people, like the community around them still wasn't really happy with them being there. And they were still having to fight that. At one point, the DeGrimstons took a vacation, and I thought this was funny. So they went to several places, but one of the places they went was to Israel, and it was right before what was called the Six-Day War. And, you know, there's a lot of dissension in that area, and I don't know exactly what this one was about. But when they barely got out, like in time before they would have been locked in the country. And Robert was like, I can't help but feel that this has something to do with our church and the process and the work that they're, we're doing. Oh, and I'm like, my really? God. The hundred years long war between the Palestines and the Israel Israelites. You, you think don't that's under- related you to think you that's related to all? your stupid fucking church? <laughs> anyway, delusions of grandeur. Yes. Right. Um, <laughs> Marianne wanted to leave London and she wanted to expand the church and they were looking for a place. They still felt like London wasn't their permanent home. They were like constantly in search for their permanent home. Right. So they were looking at places to go and they decided America, America, we're in this like free love movement right now. There's open minds. There's people testing spirituality and beliefs and stuff. So this is the place we want to go. So they moved to get out. (laughs) Leave. They, yeah, they opened a chapter on Royal Street in New Orleans. And Ooh. I got to say, that is the place that they, like, that to me was like a good place for them to belong at that time. Because there was some pretty wild ideas going on in New Orleans. You know what I mean? At that, that point sound in time. sound financial decision for them to move to Well, New they Orleans. never had any money. Well, so sound there was business no decision. Sound, sound business decision. <laughs> 
to grow. So, and Marianne loved New Orleans. She loved it. She loved the aspect of like the unpredictability and like the open mindedness to different like spirituality and religions and just the fact that people were allowed to be a little bit more wild and crazy there. And so they opened a coffee shop there like they had in London. And at this point, they still have the faction in London that's running. So this is an expansion. Um, But they didn't really have money to support any of it. Uh, The whole time they're going through this, they're just barely, you know, breaking even. But they stay in New Orleans for... A little while. And this was in 1967. Oh, so we've moved to the next year. They moved to New Orleans. <laughs> so they stay in New Orleans for a little while. And at this point, they actually registered officially as a church. So they became recognized, or as a religion, I should say. They Tax became break, baby. They became recognized as a sanctioned religion. And therefore, all of the income that they took in via their magazine, via peddling, all of that was tax exempt because they were a religion, which helped them to stay afloat, but they were still struggling, right? And um, at this point, too, they also became more stringent. Um, They required their new members to jump through more hoops to reach like any kind of a status or acceptance into the religion. This was all like Marianne's manipulation to gain more and more control. Like you have to do this much now for us to accept you here and you have to do this much for us to take you to this level. And this was also at the point where she became very black and white, became hot and cold, would take somebody in as like like a protege, and then within like a couple of months be like, no, you're cast out and you're you're the black sheep or whatever. You can just see like her mental illness kind of like moving forward. And then, <laughs> this is so fucking weird. At this point too, she created this system where the older members were like mothers and fathers, and the newer members were sons and daughters. And the newer members had to find an older member to partner with. So a daughter would find a father, or a son would find a mother, and they would partner with them and form this relationship that was almost like a marriage with sexual-like relationships And, but then it was expanded to where like the daughter or the son, if they were like mid level in the hierarchy, they would take on a newer member as a daughter or a son and become that person's mother or father. So there was multiple relationships. So it was almost like this polyamorous or, you know, I don't know if I'm using the right term. But, um, you know, where they would have multiple relationships, none of which were fueled by love or caring. Right, it was a structure. And this is when they began to have children that weren't properly, like that nobody wanted and weren't properly taken care of, right? And it becomes worse later. I mean, it it always turns into a sex cult. It does. (laughs) It's fucking weird. It's like a really messed up version of the big little system in fraternities and sororities. (laughs) The mommy-daddy system. (laughs) Like way creepier. (laughs) So in, um, so this is kind of how the the whole church was going at this point and they were starting to kind of lose some of their popularity in New Orleans but the main reason they left New Orleans 
which they do in 1968, is because the DeGrimstons never got citizenship and they were on the run for being immigrants, illegal immigrants into the, in the country. So they ran, they left new Orleans in 1968, but instead of moving out of the country, they moved to San Francisco. I find this bit of information I'm going to tell you now to be fucking hilarious. So when in San Francisco, the DeGrimsons contacted Anton LaVey, who created the church of Satanism in San Francisco, right? And Anton LaVey completely dismissed them as kooks. He's <laughs> like, I don't have nothing to do with you, fucking nut jobs. That's hilarious. So they stayed in San Francisco for about a month, and then they moved to L.A. <laughs> when they were in L.A., that's when they had their connections to Manson, Charles Manson. And oh. there is this rumored connection between the church and Manson and the murders and all of that. But the reality of it is they were in L.A. for like a month or two. They weren't there very long. Manson was connected to the church while he was there. Um, but then they left and went back to New York. Manson was also connected to a or lot of people. went to New York, like, I should wasn't- say. Helen Mirren almost in the fucking Manson family. I don't some, know. Helen there Mirren was some, is a maybe not Helen Mirren, but there was some older female actress who in the 70s almost joined the Manson family. All I know is that the drummer from the Beach Boys is the one that introduced Manson to Tex Watson. Yep. So if it weren't yeah. for the drummer of the Beach Boys, the murders probably wouldn't have ever happened. He probably struggles with that, with, with shot. With shot, just like you struggle. And they also Mr. stole Words. a couple of Manson's terrible songs. I know some facts. <laughs> I know some things. <clears throat> so, yeah, shortly after they were in L.A., they moved to New York. And this, again, was supposed to be a temporary. Like, this whole time they've been looking for their permanent place, right? So New York was supposed to be temporary, but it ended up being a very long time that they were there. Um, while they were in New York, they were not doing like the morale was not good. The membership wasn't good. People were getting tired. They were leaving. They were finding ways to get out, secretly getting jobs so that they could make enough money to leave the cult and stuff. And, um, some of the members, they were still staunch members, but they wanted to go back to London. So they saved some money, sent some members back to London And when they got to London, they were barred entry into the country because at that point in time, London was not allowing anybody in that had any affiliation with the Church of Scientology. So we need to do like a multiple episode series on the Church of Scientology. But apparently they were that that, like big and traumatizing to the citizens that they weren't letting people in. And the process was viewed as like a spinoff of the Church of Scientology. So they were not allowed to come in to the country. I think L. Ron Hubbard had like a lot of connections to British society. And so that might be partially why like England specifically decided not to let any Scientologists in. So because they couldn't go into the country, the members then made their way to Amsterdam and they stayed there for a short period of time. This is still in 1968. There's a lot that happens over like two years. Yeah. Like that, that's why I said they're jet setting, man. Yeah. They've seen more of the world than I will ever fucking see. Yeah. Um, but they uh, moved to Amsterdam, but they didn't stay there long. And then they moved to Germany. And they didn't stay in Germany very long. At this point, the whole 
the whole church had like hit rock bottom. The DeGrimstons were staying in a rat infested hotel, like squatting. I don't know where, but <laughs> I think they were still in New York mm-hmm. um, at this point. And so at this point, yeah, they had the faction or the chapter that was in New York. They had the chapter that was in London. They had these people that couldn't get back that were like in Amsterdam and Germany. And they're trying to run all of this. And then 1969, Manson commits murder, Mm -hmm. right? And it comes out in the media that he had a connection to the church. And so then the media is like hammering down on the church because, you know, and the church even comes out and says, yeah, Manson, yeah, he was connected to the church. He was a member for a short period of time. And we honestly believe if he would have stayed a member, we could have prevented him from committing these murders because... This is where I go, like, this is not as fucked up as I thought it would be because they weren't Satanists. They weren't sacrificing dogs. They weren't having these horrible rituals. Yeah, they had their weird hierarchy and they had their weird sexual preferences. And and then there's the child abuse. And there's some child (laughs) neglect. I wouldn't say abuse, but neglect for sure that happens. And this happens later more than earlier. But... but they weren't. They what had said no they influence. They weren't actually associated with the murders. Now, some of the the things that Manson followed in, like the family, which was cultish, was similar teachings. They both drew from the Book of Revelations. So they were fighting this stuff with Manson, and they were trying to plead their case, and they were doing a horrible job. And one of the ways that they decided to do it was on their publication, they decided to put the cover of Man, like the, a picture of Manson on the cover, and have no. like an article that he wrote. And I don't really understand. I haven't read the publication. I don't really know what they were getting at. But of course, this just fueled well, yeah. like yeah. more hate <laughs> and stuff. So. Why wouldn't it? Bad call, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And this is when the whole satanic panic really hit the fan with the process. And this is when the rumors of animal sacrifices, specifically dog sacrifices, which I think is funny because Marianne was a known dog lover. She had multiple shepherds. She liked German shepherds. And I think that's or Anatolian shepherds, maybe. But she liked shepherds. And um, she had multiple dogs all the time, like upwards of like six to ten dogs. And like there's people that have reported saying that the dogs were better taken care of than the children. So the idea that she would be a part of any kind of animal sacrifice is hard to believe. And there's no evidence of it. Children sacrifice. I don't know. I don't know. They didn't really give a shit about the kids. So you're right. Maybe they did sacrifice some. And like, we have enough anyway, so it's okay. But fucking save those dogs. Um, Save the pups. The views of Salem are not necessarily the views of the rest of us on this podcast. (laughs) True. So uh, at this point, though, they were being totally persecuted by the media and everything. And then there was this one gentleman named Sanders. He wrote a book about the process and church of the final judgment and about Manson and about their connection. And he made all of this wild speculation trying to connect them (laughs) to the point where the church actually sued him. Ed Sanders. Thank you. What's the name of the book he wrote? The family. That's it. And the family was the name of the cult that Manson right. was involved yeah. with. Yeah, that's the in his 1972 book. He alleged that Manson had been a member of the Process Church and 
I don't want to click on the Wikipedia link. So. No, that's okay. You don't have to because I have the knowledge right here. Ed Sanders. I'm pointing to my head if those Ned of you that can't Flanders. see me. Ned so Flanders. Oakley Doakley. Why don't you want to click on the Wikipedia link? I don't know because I don't want to have this to read the Wikipedia. Oh, okay. No, I was worried Wikipedia is uh, bad and we're not oh, supposed no. to use it anymore. <laughs> no, or I'm just I'm lazy. Like, <laughs> okay, good. Because I use Wikipedia. So they sued Sanders for play or for um, defamation. Defamation. Thank you. They. I read that in the article too. Sanders. The church sued Sanders for defamation, and they were able to settle out of court in like the American courts. They and basically their settlement was. I don't really think they got much money, but their settlement was that he would remove all of the information about the process church. From the book. Okay. And, but then they were still in court with the church in England and the English uh, publishers. And for whatever reason, when they had to go to court, they, the DeGrimstons didn't go. They sent members of the church to go in their stead. And it ended up being like a debacle and they lost and they owed money to the church for like court costs and to like the publishing companies for court costs, which basically like they're already struggling, always been struggling with finances. And this just basically put them like even lower than where they were before. So um, during this process of like going through court, like Marianne got so obsessed with the court cases and she was already like so obsessed with her status and her place in the church. And she had always been like over controlling Robert. And in this period of time, Robert took on a protege named Morgana Morgana. So this would be like his daughter or something creepy. In yeah. There. Something creepy like that. And he formed a, a sexual relationship with her, which Marianne at first was fine with, but then they fell in love and he ended up leaving the church and going to Mexico with Morgana, which when Marianne was with Robert, he kind of tempered her. Once he left, she just became a monster. And just I stand by what I said earlier about how this man wanted to leave his family and was going to find a reason to do so. And he did it again. <laughs> so once he moved to Mexico, Robert tried to continue, like he wanted to open a chapter. At this point, it, they were calling it not the process, but the Foundation Church of God, or there's been a couple of names for it. But he tried to continue the church while he was in Mexico. And Marianne was trying to continue the church in London and in New York. And she was in New York at this point in time. And officially in 1975, they divorced. And I guess it was a nightmare. Lots of court proceedings. Had he even fun, officially fun divorced his first wife? I mean, I guess he had to, he have, must have. to have married her. But yeah. like, he was like, it was so hard because he had to go through two whole divorces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so after, after they divorced, Marianne purchased this big studio property in New York at the, the small tune of $900,000. How did she find that? I'm not sure how she got financed for it. This was in 1975. I want to look up what that would be in today's money. So their monthly mortgage was $40,000 a month is what they had to pay. 
And right. this whole responsibility plus all her other finances was placed upon the members making money. At this point, she became like a total drill master. You have to sell magazines, magazines and shit like that. It just she just became a monster, just became the scrambling, in my opinion, of like how to how to make ends meet. And she was still trying to like promote herself as like this this goddess, you know. But do you want to know what forty thousand dollars is worth in today's money? Yes, a hundred ninety eight thousand dollars a month. And a you're, month. You're getting that money by selling magazines and coffee. <laughs> mm-hmm. And during this point in time, Robert was still trying to keep open his um, defunct chapter of the process or the foundation and he moved to massachusetts for a little while he hooked up with this guy called brother osiris and they opened a chapter in boston which then moved to massachusetts and then boston is in massachusetts okay never mind was in boston (laughs) and then stayed in boston and then at one point he moved to toronto and but he never could like have the leadership because he was like the researcher, the writer, the studier, the teacher, and Marianne was the controller, the leader, the enforcer. And without her, he could never really gain control. And to a point, he actually, when they moved to Toronto, he rewrote the laws of the church so that it said that he would always be a member and he could never be removed. And that was kind of in an attempt of him, like, asserting his leadership, but it still never worked out. And eventually Morgana cheated on him and left him, and he was, like, so heartbroken that he expelled himself from the chapter in Toronto, went back to... New York or Boston, I'm not sure which one, and was just like so heartbroken that it took him a long time to recover. There's reports that say he just sat in a corner and didn't eat for three days. I kind of feel like he deserves it. The poor guy. No, but eventually Marianne's chapter became more of like a like a psychic kind of they they would offer psychic services, psychic readings, they would hold psychic fairs. It became more of like this providing services in this like psychic kind of metaphysical, you know, the 70s and how it was really open to all of that. Well, that sounds more fun. That sounds more fun. <laughs> and it actually made them more money and helped to keep the church open. But Marianne was very adamant that they should be more involved in ministry Rather than all, so she wanted, she was trying to force the the church into like stopping all of these like psychic metaphysical things that they're doing and focus more on ministry. And the members of the church at this point were, you know, this is what brings us money and ministry doesn't bring us money. And so there was this, this split in the group where some people wanted to continue with their psychic and metaphysical practices, and some people wanted to focus more on ministry. So at this point, Timothy Wiley was running the New York chapter. He was like a director, and she she had contacted him, and he had made the recommendation that just like, why don't you do both? You know what I mean? Like you can provide this service, but also have your ministry. And so they tried that for a little while, but it just... It didn't work out like enough people had left at that point. They didn't really have a group. The whole thing was falling apart. So eventually Marianne moved to Utah and they closed the New York and the London chapters eventually. And 
what I think is really interesting is the only, so this doesn't, this whole cult does not exist anymore, except that the remaining members opened up best friends, animal shelter or animal rescue. And they decided that like, they were not gaining what they needed to get through the spiritual practices that they were like chasing basically, and that they really wanted to help. Like the whole purpose was giving back. And so that's how they thought they could give back. And so the people, and I don't know how much of Best Friends Animal Shelter really exists anymore. Let's We all pulled out, out our phones. <laughs> and while you're looking that up, I did we read one article from a Jared Garrett that was a child that was a part of the cult. Oh, and he talks about how when he was young, how they were very much neglected, pretty much ignored, left to like, he said the dogs were better taken care of than the kids were. But he, his description of what the process church stood for was, quote, as far as I could tell, it was Scientology thrown in the mixer with some paganism and some end times Christianity, end quote. Well, Sounds fun. Sounds fun. <laughs> I mean... I like that they ended up just being an animal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It looks like the there's end. still two locations in Utah. Yeah, so Best Friends Animal Society, Society is still exists. I'm looking on their Who We Are page and I see nothing about how we started from <laughs> the process. It's on Wikipedia. Oh wait, it says back in 1984, a scrappy group of friends from far corners of the globe settled in a remote area of Utah's high desert and took the first steps to forever changing the future for pets and shelters. So I don't know if that's the same people. But we can look into this a little bit more later. But they <laughs> apparently, if that is them, then they so are they still... So they ended up doing some good. Like way better good than what they, they were doing before. never yeah. had satanic rituals. They did have orgies. Do you think that, because I did confirm on Wikipedia that it the, the, the Best Friend Society did originate as the Process Church of the Final Judgment, do you think that they'd feel really great about people knowing about these, like, orgies and the <laughs> mother-son stuff going on? Probably and... not, but we can't erase history. The best thing we can do is look at it and try to not repeat it. And they're doing or good repeat now. repeat the good shit, yeah. Yes, yeah. like, they're saving and animals like, and stuff. People can grow and learn and... Well, and everything that the church had to do with was McLean, in my opinion. Yeah. She was a crazy fucking woman who thought she was a goddess and thought she, she wanted all this control and all this money and all this greed. And she was finding all the, the re ways to get it by manipulating and using other people. I, I, you know, once she was out of the picture, the people that were involved are probably just lost souls that mm -hmm. were looking for something to hang on to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least they found something good. Yeah. So Even those pups. So that's my story. Yay, what a good Yay. story. Good job. Yeah, it was interesting. It's all right. It's yeah, interesting. It was pretty good. I think it was a good, strong first episode back. I think it's funny mm -hmm. how many places they went. Like yeah. I said, they've been more places than I'll ever be in my life. They did more shit in 1966 that I'll do in my whole life. Yeah. And I didn't <laughs> even I didn't even touch on some of the places. Like they at one point went to Rome. They were in Italy. They Please. were like all over Roman the fucking Italy. world just looking for a place to belong. Rome and <laughs> nobody wanted them. That was part of it. Was it like nobody wanted them there? They weren't welcome well, yeah, anywhere. Until they started saving animals and they then were they were like, cult. all right, you can stay. All right, so we are done. Yay! It's time to move on to... Things that don't suck. 
Yay! 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 That was a good story. It feels good it was to be a back. Good story. It feels really good that to be back. That story didn't suck. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go first? Uh, uh, uh. I go, can go, I'll f- go first. You want to go first? Sure. Kelly. So something that does suck is having anxiety that, <laughs> it, that really gets in disrupts your life. Something that I've recently discovered that doesn't suck that makes me happy is chamomile. Ooh. I've been taking chamomile capsules and chamomile extract, and it's really been helping my nighttime anxiety. So that's cool. So there's a little timbit if you want to give it a little try. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right, who's next? I mean, I guess I'll go next. Well, my thing that doesn't suck is Kyle. Aww. I just got married to him and I love him. And I had a rough day yesterday, but he bought me flowers and he took me out to lunch. And he definitely knows exactly how to turn my day around. So I'm thankful for Kyle. You don't suck, babe. That's sweet. That is sweet. Yes, you do. Well, sometimes, but no, he doesn't. we all suck sometimes. So. <laughs> yes, we do. All of us. I'm perfect. Okay. <laughs> okay, Miss Perfect. It's your turn. Hannah. Uh, my thing that doesn't suck is that I have three weeks off of school. That's awesome. I'm going to sleep through all of them, but I don't really actually have three weeks off because I still work every single day. So, well, three weeks off of school. Uh, yeah. yeah. Then you can that's cool. sleep in the afternoons. That's, that's half of the shit that you've been doing. Storyteller, what's your thing? Salem. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So my thing that doesn't suck is podcasts in general. Not our podcast specifically, because we (laughs) had agreed that we can't use that, but just podcasts, because they keep me sane on my super long drive. I agree. And they also was a big informative piece of my story. And so it yeah, yeah. was a podcast that I listened to. So called, it was Cult or Cults. Oh, yeah. I love that podcast. I've listened to some episodes of that. So anyway, I just love podcasts. I also love podcasts. They make me feel like I still have friends during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> make me feel connected. Yeah. So, and I love everybody here and I'm so excited that Yay, we're back. We're back. Yay. That doesn't suck. No, not so. that's an awesome thing. So are we ready to call this? I think so. Yeah. Peace out. Peace out. This is all this. <laughs> <laughs>